Hello, and welcome to the Northern Overexposure podcast, where we overanalyze the 1990s CBS television series Northern Exposure. My name is Charles, and this is my friend Lee. Hello, I'm Lee. I co-host with Charles. Yes, we love to talk about Northern Exposure. I have never seen it before. Lee has seen it plenty of times. Yeah, that's so. our. That's kind of our dynamic. That's our whole. That's our yeah, whole, it's our uh, shtick right here. Yeah, exactly. And at the end of the episode, we love to bring someone new who's never seen the television series before and introduce them to it and get their opinions on it. Yeah, that's like the mission statement of the podcast is to expand the reach of the show. It's uh, it's not an easy show uh, necessarily to to acquire. Uh, it's it's only available on DVD. Uh, unfortunately, not streaming, but. In our own way, we like to share the show with our friends. Yeah, so we are on episode four from season two, What I Did for Love. Yeah, episode four, season two. Uh, how's, it, how's it looking for you, Charles? Well, right off the bat, I thought it was going to be an episode about passion and love because of... Because of the title, okay. Yeah, uh, do you know what the title comes from? Oh, no, 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 no. What's it pulled from? I'm... Well, usually most times when people use this uh, what I did for love phrase, it comes from the musical A Chorus Line because it's a pivotal song. song. Yeah, the pivotal song is called What I Did for Love and it's about the the dancers who are all trying to try out for the musical. They explain what they had to do and the passion they have for dancing and what they would do uh, to achieve up to this tryout. So... That's what I thought the episode was going to be about. No, I I guess it's not really thematically tied to that song. Exactly. I don't know why it's borrowing the title because it doesn't really have anything to do with the musical or even that song. Was there any music from Chorus Line in this episode? Because there was a, I think The King and I is featured somewhere in here. Is it? Um, Yeah, I believe the the musical, there's like a musical fanfare, the scene when... um, when Maurice and Ingrid are in bed together. That's um, what I thought it was, mm-hmm. but I wasn't entirely too correct. There's music from South Pacific as well. Okay. In this episode? Mm-hmm. In oh, the wow. dream sequence. Okay. That's the song oh. that they're singing. Wait, which, uh, which dream sequence? Uh, the one where they're all celebrating uh, Ginsburg being the new doctor in Joel's uh. dream. <laughs> yeah, can we talk about that scene real fast? Well, no, well, we got we should probably it's a, it's you know a lot what? of no. setup, but go ahead. Get us I there. guess we should. Yeah. Let's let's just go into it right there for the setup for it. Um we know that Joel is trying to go on his vacation to New York for two weeks and they need a substitute doctor in order to watch over the town of Sicily while he's gone. So they get David Ginsburg. Wait, is his name David? Yeah, I think they call him Doctor Ginsburg, Dave Ginsburg. A lot of um, a lot of the people, the townsfolk, call him Dave. Yes. Uh, so Dave is the new doctor in charge. Substitute. Yeah, in charge. Substitute you're right. doctor, and he's like the antithesis to Joel because he he's so excited to be in Sicily. Yeah, and he's I mean he's uh, similarly um, you know he claims to be a Jewish doctor. He's from New York. Um, I say claims because uh, apparently Joel is very suspicious of his. Jewishness, I guess you could say, because, you know, he's Aryan, like white hair or, or white skin, blonde hair, blue eyes. I love what uh, Joel has to say about him. What do you think about this Dave anyway? Oh, he's nice. Yeah. You base that conclusion on what? His niceness. Plus, he's an excellent doctor. Now, how do you know that? Well, he's Jewish and he's from New York. That Dave Jewish? Give me a break. Man's got no pigmentation. His roots are blonde. Scandinavian? 
his hair roots. The, the guy's a Jewish imposter, Ed. Some goyish overachiever who changed his name from Gilmore to Ginsburg to get credibility. Jewish. Give me a break. Yeah, so what is that uh, referencing, Gilmore? Uh, Gilmore's like an Irish. Okay, um, just like a t- stereotypically lineage. not a, a very um, goyish name. Yeah, so I, I just like Toya yeah, and used those two to uh, play off of each other. <laughs> but this uh, so-called Jewish doctor who's even from the same area of New York, Flushing, Flushing Queens right. as Joel. And Joel is just, yeah, obviously super surprised by this. He is He's incredulous that um, that this man is Jewish. And also, yeah, he's just surprised that uh, someone, a city dweller like himself would be so excited as you said, Charles, he's like, he, uh, Ginsburg is ecstatic and, and very eager to just explore nature. Uh, he's even like picking up some of the Tlingit language from Marilyn. He's like, he's, he's yeah. just so kind. He reminds me of, uh, I don't know, just like someone who's like too nice and it's suspicious in a way. Yeah. He's like putting up an act positive. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of like an act, but I... I, I think it's really hard to tell if he's even doing an act because maybe he's just that positive. He he really reminded me of um, William Hurt's character in Broadcast News. Do you remember that movie, Charles? Yes, I love that movie. So in Broadcast News, it's like that scene when Albert Brooks's character is talking with Holly Hunter's character. She's fallen in love with William Hurt. Uh, and Albert Brooks basically calls him the devil. Don't get me wrong when I tell you that Tom, while being a very nice guy, is the devil. This isn't friendship. You're crazy, you know that? What do you think the devil's going to look like if he's around? God. Come on, no one's going to be taken in by a guy with a long red pointy tail. Come on, what's he going to sound like? I'm semi-serious here. You're serious? He will be attractive. He'll be nice and helpful. He'll never do an evil thing. He'll never deliberately hurt a living thing. Well, really, it's it's kind of just the beginning of that. Uh, yeah, it's that really monologue just the beginning. that that reminded me so much of this. There was actually two things in there. I'm almost positive that Sorkin had ripped from him, or like uh, at least borrowed from broadcast some news from broadcast news. Because there's a scene where multiple times in a lot of Sorkin shows, they'll be like, "Communists look exactly like non-communists," or like terrorists look exactly like non-terrorists, or something like that. Yeah, which which, reflects on the theme of the devil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, broadcast news is incredible, impeccable, just uh, amazing film. <laughs> James L. Brooks, man, come on, Mary Tyler Moore show. That's I have that's, um. Terms of Endearment in from Netflix DVD. I need to watch that. Yeah. Oh, nice. Have you ever seen that one? No, I want to though. Uh, maybe we should check it out. Yeah. That's an, that's another Patreon. Uh, <laughs> 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 so we're talking about Ginsburg. Let's see. Yeah, and Ginsburg does have this one moment at least where he seems a little sinister. I don't know if you caught it. I don't remember what it is. I think Ruth Ann dropped by to give uh, some cookies to Dr. Ginsburg or, or to the, the kids that are um, at his office. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's like oatmeal cookies. And Ginsburg says, ooh, oatmeal, my favorite. But as he says that, his eyes are directly locked at, um, locked onto Dr. Fleischman, just kind of like rubbing it in Fleischman's face that these people of Sicily love Ginsburg so much. I didn't read into that. Um, I yeah, he's like, stari- he's like staring and smiling straight at Joel. It's a very friendly look, but it's also sort of has that sly possibility of just sort of like gloating, you know? <laughs> yeah, you could say that it is just a, a veneer 
that he's putting on or some sort of uh, outer appearance, uh, the ostensible truth, because later on at the uh, final scene between Joel and Ginsburg, Ginsburg's already redecorated the office. Yeah, he he's presuming that Joel is going to go away forever. Yeah, but that but that's because uh, yeah because of another plot line where um, I guess it kind of ties in with uh, with Ginsburg a little bit here. But uh, apparently Maggie's been having these dreams. Uh, that's actually how the this episode begins. Maggie has a dream that Joel is going to die, um, and we can get into that in a second. But mm-hmm. you're right. That's why Ginsburg has already decided that. Joel may not be returning, so he started putting up his own decorations. That's also the scene where Joel quizzes him on uh, his Yiddish. He just really wants to see if Ginsburg actually is Jewish or if he yeah, kind he's of trying pretending. to test his vocabulary, trying to test his lineage. Uh, lots of great Yiddish words. One of my favorite ones this episode. Um, Joel says "fakakta," and I really like that. Do you know what that means? Pretty much like bullcrap, right? Yeah, I looked this up on um, Wikipedia. And apparently the etymology is um, from Yiddish, for cockta, sh- upon. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I don't know if, can we even include that in the episode or? Uh, I think so, because it wasn't the one with the I, S-H, <laughs> yeah, you know, a T. <laughs> it's the past tense, but also. <laughs> I really like that word though, but the the word that he specifically uses to test him, uh, I can't see it. I, I can never get that guttural uh, sound in the back. Yeah. Nachas, yeah. Um, I'll play the sound bite. You are a prince, Ginsburg. Real mensch. Thanks. I wish you nachas. Oh, thanks. Nachas is one of those words I mean, you always hear, but you never really know exactly what it means. Does anyone really know? Do you, Ginsburg? Well, happiness, luck. Uh-huh. It actually dates from the 12th century when uh, Nachas were the spice gate. They gave travelers. All right, all right. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> apparently Did you Ginsburg know what that word is. Meant? No, I had no idea. Oh, um, I had no idea either. I don't really know, you know, Yiddish words. I only know a few Hebrew words just from prayers and stuff. I only know Yiddish words because I've watched West Wing a lot of times. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Very nice. Oh, back to the original thread that mm-hmm. we were trying to get through all this. So that was the setup as to what we're trying to say is that it looks like that Ginsburg is settling in really well into the town of Sicily. Yes. And Joel has this dream where he's going through kind of like a town meeting of sorts. In the brick, right? Yeah. Well, the town is all congregated at a location mm-hmm. and they're having fun. And they're singing a song from the musical South Pacific. That's what we were uh, talking about. Yeah. Yeah. The song's called I'm in love uh, with a wonderful guy. And it's a great song. Nice. But yeah, uh, again, another musical reference. So I thought maybe there would be a lot of tie-ins to musicals, but I guess just because it was just, of the title. Yeah. The mm-hmm. title, uh, Maggie's listening to Cole Porter. Yeah. But I, I guess it would just flavor just to throw in. Yeah. And about that sort of dream sequence, uh, premonition that Joel has, uh, he's imagining what Sicily would be like without him. It's interesting. He's walking through the brick, but Joel himself is in black and white while all of his surroundings are in color. Uh, they're cheering on Ginsburg and there's like confetti flying everywhere. I think everyone's waving like flags, tiny flags of Israel. You know, I guess like, <laughs> they've all converted. Um, 
<laughs> I didn't even catch that detail. You didn't see that? Yeah, they all have little flags. I think Maurice maybe has a patch, but I know there's people waving flags of Israel. I thought it was the American flag, but that makes it way more funnier that it's the flag of Israel. Yeah, dude. Uh, is that a reference with Joel being black and white? Is that a reference to It's a Wonderful Life? Yeah. It was, because because uh, Ed, is, Ed is talking about that. In fact, in that same scene, maybe? Or yeah, I think just earlier. Yeah. Yeah, he's talking about... That's interesting. So it's like a reverse. It's a, it's a wonderful... It's, it's a terrible life, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Because it's showing how much wonderful the place actually is without him. Wow, yeah. Well, okay. Let's get into um, sort of the beginning of this episode with Maggie's dream. Do you want to kind of set that up? Yeah, so we're getting into a, a very intimate setting where we're in Maggie's place and Maggie and Joel are playing Clue. The board game, yes. Did you know that Clue's original name was uh, Cluedo? Cluedo. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so apparently the creator of it was this Englishman, and he combined the words of Clue and Ludo. I believe that's how you pronounce it. It's from Latin for I play. Okay. Just combine both of the words, but then... How uh, old is Clue? Mm, it came out in 1949, I want to say. Okay. I think it was invented in like 1945 or 1946, but it took a couple years for it to get off the ground. Yeah. Uh, and then it was purchased by uh, Hasbro, I want to say. Probably something like that. Yeah. And then they just shortened it to just Clue because that was way more catchier. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they're playing Clue and Maggie's wearing this very sultry red dress. Yeah, she's kind of like vampire Maggie, just the way she's like made up. And the, yeah. the stylized, very stylized blue lighting. I found that, oh, just a quick note on the lighting. Uh, you know, this is a, uh, we've definitely seen lighting like this in season one. You know, typically nighttime is characterized by very colorful blue light, you know, very bright blue light, sort of like the bright light of the moon. But in season two, this blue lighting is used for a more stylistic effect, like dreams and such. Mm-hmm. You know, when Maggie actually wakes up from her dream, the color of the moon is a little less intense. It's a little less blue. Oh, or the color okay. of the moonlight, I should say, rather. So you're saying that the dream is much more sharper and more realistic than real life? Maybe not realistic, but just more stylized, you know, more colorful, more vibrant, for sure. Mm, okay. I think that makes more sense, too, because in the dreams, every action that you do or everything that you're seeing is blatantly symbolic to some degree. So it makes sense that it would be so heavily stylized in, within there. Right, right. They get to have fun with more color and um, more sur- surreal, surreality, surrealness. <laughs> Surreality? <laughs> yeah. What's the proper conjugation of that or... It's the proper I way know, to say that. I don't know, but I like that. it. Surreality. <laughs> Surrealness. I don't know. Surreality. We could go with either. Um, but I think also in this dream sequence, a key symbol, as you were saying, is introduced. The black fedora. Yeah. yeah. Um, Joel puts on the black fedora. Initially, Maggie doesn't want him to put it on. And I thought it was because the black fedora belonged to one of her previous boyfriends and it held symbolic meaning behind it. But no, it's, it does hold symbolic meaning, mm-hmm. but not for what I thought. Apparently means you're about to buy the farm. Yeah. Again, buying the farm. Call back to episode, what was that? Kodiak moment? Uh, mm, somewhere in the middle of season one. That's all I remember. Yeah. It's when, uh, when Maurice's brother buys Passed the away. farm. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the, the black fedora being a symbol. Let's talk about that because it kind of um, is referred to throughout the episode. For instance, 
I believe Joel is visiting Maggie, or how does this happen? Maggie yeah. is at her house, and she has we we sort of get to see her shrine to all of her, mm-hmm. you know, former boyfriends who have passed away. Yeah, and the reason they're even in her house in the first place is because Joel is being uncharacteristically kind to Maggie and decides oh, to help her move a chair into right. her place. And and she's um, very suspicious of him, you know, kind of wanting to help help her out. But I think it's also, it's sort of suspicion, but it, it also is probably her just sort of feeling confused by, because of her dreams, because this comes right after that. And you can tell she feels a little awkward around Joel. You know, have you ever like had a, a strange dream about, a friend or something and then or you know I just remember in school like I had a weird dream about classmates and you just can't <laughs> act, you just can't act normal around them anymore yes yes like, it, it doesn't this, even have to like be like your anything. classmate tried to kill you or something and yeah you- <laughs> <laughs> honestly well I mean just like we were talking about, about dreams being sharper than uh, what's happening in real life. Mm-hmm. Like, it seems like whatever happens in a dream, even if it's mundane between people you know, it's such a weird feeling that whenever you next see them. It's like, a strong memory. Just, it like burns into yeah, your brain, you know? Exactly. Even if they were just, I don't know, giving you an apple or something like that, <laughs> just something mundane, you still just remember it <laughs> within there. You can never look at them the same again. Yeah. I, I think that dream has a lot of not heavy-handed because I I don't think it was heavy handed. I just it's very obvious symbolism. Yeah. So like they're playing the board game of Clue, which is a murder mystery board game. Which is both of those words are kind of like indicative of what's going to happen to Joel. You don't really know if he's going to pass away and pass away in, in mysterious circumstances. Yeah. Um, obviously, there's sexual tension there because they're both wearing their Sunday best. <laughs> yeah. I think I think the dream sequence and the repeat of it are like really yeah because it came in for us what how does it return i know i know again later they're playing clue and uh uh basically the grim reaper has joined them but he goes by the name mr streisand is it mr streisand yeah, mr streisand um and then and then again later joel has a dream right is it joel mm-hmm. that has a dream or joel Maggie? has a dream where he's in the airplane yeah and then there's a mrs streisand or a miss streisand which is a which is again a, a, another Grim Reaper character sitting next to him. Mm-hmm. What happens in that dream? In the airplane dream? Mm-hmm. Uh, in the airplane dream, he looks out and he's noticing that it's all covered in ice. So I guess it means that he's still relatively in the region of Canada or Alaska. And then Maggie hands him champagne. Do you, is this any? Oh of yeah, this, uh, she, yeah. She's a, she's else? like the flight attendant. Yeah. No thanks. I watched this episode <laughs> a few days ago, but uh, thankfully Charles watched it today. So he's he's gonna. I'm looking at my notes, but it's a little far removed. There's so many moving parts in this episode. I don't blame yeah. you at all. But yeah, she has a parachute on her back, and Joel is. Uh, he's just like, I, you I can't. Guess, you're a flight attendant. You can't wear a parachute. It makes the what would the passengers think? Yeah, think about what the passengers are, and she just jumps out of the plane. And Joel then like falls through this poorly visualized star, sort of <laughs> space. Like he's falling into space. It kind of reminds me of like a Windows 95 screensaver or something. <laughs> I mean, it was revolutionary at the time. Yeah. I mean, I guess, yeah, it's a few years before Windows 95. So it is definitely oh, yeah, ahead true. of the curve. Well, no, there is an interesting conversation in this scene. Joel and the Grim Reaper character are talking about, Joel, Joel describes himself as an existentialist, but then corrects that statement saying that he's more more like a rational humanist. Yeah. 
Which is in line with Joel's character, I would say. Mm -hmm. What is a humanist? I think it just means that you're of the belief that humans have agency over their own lives and that they shouldn't be following superstition or uh, some sort of anything that isn't rational. Gotcha. Um, We should go off of that. Mm Mm-hmm. I guess it's kind of kind of similar to existentialism in a way. Yeah, very similar to it. I don't know why Joel's splitting hairs right here, but I, I guess <laughs> yeah. it would actually be even more in character if he was splitting hairs. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's very Joel. So they have that conversation about the you know, their philosophy or their viewpoints in life. But it comes back later in the episode because I think Joel says when he confronts Maggie about it in her house mm-hmm. uh, at the very end, he's saying like, I, I'm not superstitious. Like I'm yeah. just, I'm just he doing just, this because I don't trust Ginsburg. Right. Yeah. That's his whole sort of, um, that's his explanation for why he would stay. But I think he finally does get spooked. I can't really remember how that, uh, I think it's from the dream. It's from uh, Marilyn and, and everyone essentially throughout this episode, everyone is saying their final goodbyes to Joel. In fact, um, another plot line in this episode is um, the Founders' Day celebration where they talk about how the town of Sicily was founded. We can get into that in a second, but... um, Yeah, all those scenes where the townsfolks are talking to Joel about Joel's death is probably the funniest scenes I have seen yeah. in Northern Exposure. Oh, yeah. so you really liked, uh, you know, the comedy factor in this episode? Yeah, I, I don't even know if it was truly played for comedy, but uh, that little yeah, kid who so. talks to Joel about his, oh, uh, I think yeah. it's his, like, father or grandfather? His grandma. It's like his name is his grandma. <laughs> and the way he said the uh, the line, we can insert the sound bite. Yeah. I, I just couldn't stop laughing. This is Grandpa Jim. He's dead. Oh, well... He looks very nice. If you see him, tell him Grandma's only marrying Mr. Skinner for his microwave. And I love how they're in the, when Chris is saying his speech on Founders Day. Right. And he kind of segues it into Joel. And then he asked the townsfolk yeah. and he says, uh, so uh, how many of you guys know about Maggie's dream? And like the whole town <laughs> raises up their head. Like, yeah, we've all heard about this. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because, you know, we see Chris has been sort of preparing for Founders Day throughout this episode. And um, when the time comes for him to actually give this Founders Day speech, he kind of, like you said, he takes a pause and to celebrate Joel because it may be the last time that they see him. I'd say like, yeah, 90% of the crowd gathered there raises their hand um, and they all sort of pay their respects to Joel. And, and Ed remarks that it's essentially they're holding a funeral for him with him alive and present. Ed, Ed said some, something to the effect of, I always wanted to be at my own funeral. This way you can see what people thought about you. Yeah. <laughs> that reminds me a lot of the plot line in a previous episode where uh, they have the uh, uh, the drifter who passed away in their town before he got to see Joel. Yes. All is vanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, the whole town acts as an entity or like a character where it's very, yeah, it's like quirky. It's just it's like they're just accepting of this person and they all become attached to that, uh, uh, the dead body. And it's the same way with this one where they're just, they're just accepting that Joel's going to die. Like everyone's just like, oh, I'm sorry, man. Like that's <laughs> give our regards to my loved ones that have already passed away or like, yeah. hey, don't, don't worry, man. It, it comes for us all. <laughs> yeah. Here's an, another interesting motif uh, on top of um, the townsfolk recognizing Joel, you know, is about to go to the great beyond. Uh, dogs are jumping on Joel in this episode yeah. more than once. 
What does that signify? I don't know, but it's about time that they uh, make the dogs a character in this show because we've always seen them roam in the streets. I just never understood why they never interacted with them that much. But no, there's a dog that jumps up on Joel. To, mm-hmm. It even ends a scene, I believe. Yeah, there's so many little little bits of detail that might play into this, uh, you know, for, foreboding death theme or, or theme line, I guess, through line here. Uh, for instance, I think when Dave gets first lands in Sicily, he mentions something about. Um, how the in-flight movie was marked for death, which is like a Steven Seagal action movie, but just the title itself, you I know, didn't catch that. Sounds, um, sounds pretty f- foreboding. Yeah. Well, the only, I mean, I guess if I overanalyze it, which is what we're all about, <laughs> yeah. uh, I guess that I think there's stories about dogs being able to see ghosts and be able to bark oh, at them. Yeah. yeah some okay. sort of premonition like that. So maybe the dogs could sense yeah, something of that animals nature have Joel. like a sixth sense. For sure. That actually makes a lot of sense, I think. Yeah, that would be my only reasoning behind it. Uh, otherwise, do, do you think that was uh, they just did a lot of takes and then one of the takes, just like a random dog just jumped up on them and they're like, I ah, just keep the take. But it happened more than once in this episode, I think. I think it happens at least twice in this episode. What if it just happened twice and the uh, <laughs> the director was like, just keep it. Like it's, no, yeah, it's I mean, fine. that's totally, <laughs> you're right. We, we could totally be <laughs> overanalyzing this. We're hopping around. Well, let's touch on, there's something uh, that we kind of skipped over for a second. Uh, Founder's Day? Um, yeah, well, Founder's Day, yes. But uh, <laughs> the Shrine for Lost Boyfriends. We get uh, some show Bible in here. Um, you know, I, we've learned about one of Maggie's former boyfriends who passed away. I forget his name, but he's the one that wrote Mountain of My Misgivings. Yes. Um, <laughs> I don't know if he's referenced in this episode. I, I'm pretty sure he's got his own little diorama. Well, his um, diorama is the one with the... Um, sort of mountain climbing or is it like... Yeah, a, mm-hmm. she can't replicate the snow on the mountain. Right. What does she use? Talcum powder? She's like, talcum powder just doesn't look like snow. Yeah. No matter how hard I try. Him. Trying to climb the mountain, mm-hmm. the little and stick figure of his. They're all little sort of, they kind of remind me of uh, little, they're like little skeletons, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they kind of remind me of like the Dia de, la, Dia de los Muertos sort of skeleton look, vibe. And, you know, they're little little crafts, arts and crafts, you know, there's like macaronis and little decorations and things. Uh, I believe one of them has like a little... Uh, plastic sushi or something. Yeah, for one of her past boyfriends just really like the California roll. Yeah, which has no raw fish in it, right? Uh, I think it just has the crab in it. Yeah, even then, I believe it's not even real crab. Like it's Yeah, imitation crab, crab yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, what I was getting at is Harry and Roy. I know those are two names that are mentioned in this episode uh, as being Maggie's former boyfriends. I, mm. I didn't actually... I should have been counting. Did you count how many dioramas there were? I couldn't get a good shot, like a good mm-hmm. screenshot of showing all the dioramas. So we know so, at least no. three of her boyfriends, from what we've just said, at least three of her boyfriends have died, which is a lot to go through, I guess. Like It's four boyfriends though, isn't it? It's four. Okay. So there must be four dioramas. Did, did she say that in this episode? I think that's a line earlier in the past. Established. It's mentioned. Yeah. yeah that's she's at four. Incredible. And yeah, I don't know how Maggie... <laughs> can cope but <laughs> seems to be doing well and this is um as you said they mentioned cole porter in the scene as well joel is really excited to go to new york because he's got tickets to see Sinead o'connor and he asks maggie if he's ever heard Sinead o'connor sing um you did something to me 
Yeah. Because, uh, oh, that's why he sees Maggie's Cole Porter record. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, have you ever heard Sinead O'Connor sing this song? Which is cool. I, I, I'm really happy that the end of this episode ends with that song. And, you know, it's not replaced on the DVD. We, we always talk about how season two DVDs, which is what we're watching, um, they apparently have subbed out some songs with uh, generic sort of Muzak, I guess, for cheaper music rights for whatever reason. Yeah, th- that would have been really hard for them to play, like to play it straight, I guess, if right. they didn't have that song at the end If they didn't episode. have, yeah, there's definitely songs that are referenced and they they must feel obligated and, and right. The episode would probably fall flat without these specific songs. I'm trying to think of what could have happened. My only understanding or my only guess would be all right, so they, they wouldn't release all of the seasons at once unless they did a giant box set, I guess. Mm-hmm. So they probably released the first season. And then when the second season came around, maybe they had like a specific budget that they were trying to hit. And probably the first season sales weren't doing amazing. Mm-hmm. So they just started pulling, you know, started slashing the budget on this DVD. You know, that's really interesting. I didn't think about that. I, I think there could be a lot of theories as to why this happened. And there's probably one real answer, but there's probably the an answer, answer there that, that just that don't someone, know. No, I was, we could probably figure this out if we had <laughs> like spent a little longer. Maybe we'll, maybe I'll try to do some research. Cause I'm sure like moose chick, I've referenced that website probably has a lot of information on this. And you know, there's a lot of, there's a big cult following for this show. And I think there's a big history to it that, that has been, you know, written down. So I'm sure we could dig up some information on that. Hmm. Extracurricular homework. Yeah. <laughs> did you know when the uh, cover of Sinead O'Connor's uh, You Did Something To Me came out? It was like 91 or 90, right? Yeah. It's pretty topical. Super like topical. Very, yeah. And even um, Marked for Death, the movie that I mentioned, I think came out in 1990. That's the thing is, is a lot of uh, the music on this show is very topical. You know, they're, they're very, you know, in the, in the time of the show. Maybe that's possibly why the music rights were harder to secure, but you know the DVDs came out, you know, much after the end of the, you know, the end of the show. I'm I'm assuming. Yeah. So there's got to be a reason for it. it yeah, we we just got to look into it for that. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the ending real fast of this episode with Maggie dancing to yeah. um, the Shanita Connor song. Yeah, so we had talked about it briefly earlier in this uh, in this episode where we say that Joel decides to not go on the plane and he says it's not because he's superstitious. He just, mm-hmm. you know, he's doing it for his quote-unquote practical reasons. But it's enough to make Maggie incredibly happy uh, that he didn't go yeah. on the flight. And mm-hmm. we can read this scene in multiple ways. You can either read it as to like saying that she's just glad that some Joel listened to her and he yeah. ordinarily doesn't listen to her. Uh, she's happy that Joel himself is alive because she's romantically attracted to him. <laughs> Which is, yeah, that's definitely developing this season, I'd say. Or she could just be happy that just she had changed a life in some positive manner. Yeah, she had like rescued. Um, I think it's interesting. Uh, I think it's actually in this scene before Joel leaves. Um, he, he's been apparently been waiting at her door, he says, for like five or ten minutes. She sees him at at her door and she's, she calls out, Joel, what are you, what are you doing? Um, he's just been sitting there trying to muster up the determination to knock on her door. Um, and he remarks that he, it, it feels weird cause he's never 
you know, visited Maggie socially before. I guess there have been house calls. Is that true, though? Is he, he's like never been to Maggie's house just to hang out, I guess. Yeah, I think that's I was trying true. to. I was trying to go back, and I can't think of an episode so far. Honestly, the first thing that popped into my mind for like a quote-unquote social activity is uh, in the season one finale when Bernard comes into town and Bernard and Chris play cards with Maggie yeah. and uh, Holling. Yeah, because we don't really see a whole lot of the inside of um, of Maggie's house. Yeah, that was the only scene that came to mind, and Joel is not in that scene. He was, you know, off talking to uh, Adam. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, I guess it is true that Joel's never seen her socially, at least, as well, at least in their own house, like her own yeah. house. We'll go, we'll go with that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, wh- why was I getting on this topic? Yeah, because we were talking, we were trying to determine what might be Maggie's motivation for... You know, her reaction uh, mm-hmm. at the end of the episode, sort of dancing, listening to this music, uh, uh, which, you know, to me definitely signifies Joel because it's his recommendation. You know, she's, she's yeah. turned on the radio. But just the concept of of dreaming about someone dying, I, I think that's actually why Joel has come to Maggie's apartment is to ask her, why are you having these dreams about me? Mm-hmm. He, he's basically, he wants to know if Maggie has ever had feelings for him. You know, I, I really like that exchange. Look, uh, I don't want to get too personal or anything, but is there like some reason you were so concerned with my safety? I mean, it's not like you and I are. No. We've never. God, no. So why are you having these dreams about me? I don't know. Can I suggest an explanation? No. Come on, O'Connell. Just admit that once in your heart of hearts you have had feelings for me. But do you have anything to say on that? Uh, first thing that came to mind is that they end a lot of episodes with people dancing. It's a very common theme. <laughs> well, no, that was the thing is like that was the mistake of Kodiak moment. Remember, because that was a deleted scene when Joel dances. Oh, you're right. Though he, he does dance at the end of um, season two. What is it? Uh, uh, I mean, no, season no, no, no. episode two. Episode two, season one. Yeah, brains know how. But but yeah, they, they, they made the right choice here because, uh, you know, Maggie... They, they, I love the ending because it's almost as if like the camera angle holds too long mm-hmm. on the scene. Like we, we get to see Maggie. She's not doing anything extraordinary. She's going around her house. I think she might be like cleaning something in, in the, uh, in the sink. Yeah. But we just really, the music is wonderful. So that fills the scene mm-hmm. and we just get to exist in this space with Maggie. I don't think the camera's doing too much movement. It might be stationary or just like slowly moving, but I love that moment, being stuck in this moment with her and, and getting to feel that. I really like it as well. And I, it just occurred to me, this is going to be over and analyzing and only tangentially. Go for it. But she's listening to Sinead O'Connor's cover of You Did Something To Me from Cole Porter. And she puts it on like a... Uh, she's playing it on the speakers and it's out publicly for her entire house to hear. And she's out in the kitchen just listening to the song and dancing right. and going along with it. And it occurred to me if they had filmed the episode today, it's a possibility she would have just put it in headphones and listened yeah. to that song. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if there's some sort of correlation or like some sort of uh, symbolic reasoning or meaning to listening something outside that's being broadcasted by one singular object to the entire house compared yeah. to an object that's only going to you, um, like your headphones. Here's what I, yeah, I, I definitely think we're looking way too deep in this, but I like 
the the fact that you just brought up, that's a great difference. If you were to direct this scene, Charles, and you decided, you were trying to decide how you would want to shoot it. Does Maggie play the music out on a loudspeaker, as we see? And she sort of gets to... It's almost as if this feeling fills the whole space of her house, mm -hmm. which we get sort of, as I said, this beautiful sort of like wide shot with Maggie not really doing anything, just existing in this moment and feeling it. So that's a wonderful way to, to share this scene. But alternatively, to answer your question, what might it be like if someone just put on headphones or earbuds and listened to the song? Mm -hmm. To me, that would, that would feel like a, um, a more intimate, guarded moment. Like you said, it's not projecting out to God and everyone. It's just going straight into your ears. And I think, actually, I think either way would be an interesting way to direct this scene. Mm -hmm. I don't like one over the other. The earbuds are interesting because in, in that sense, it might signify that Maggie, if she were listening um, to the song on headphones or earbuds, it might signify that she has these strong inner feelings that she can't let out um, mm. for Joel, you know? I think either way, it would be a great scene, you know? Yeah, that was just something that just popped into my head whenever you were explaining the context of the scene again. Uh, but yeah, overall, I, I mean, yeah, I really like the ending of it. Yeah, and you know, just to get back to the fact that Maggie is dreaming about Joel dying. Um, you know, if you dream about someone passing away, it means you obviously care a lot about them. Maybe. <laughs> you, you don't think so? Uh, I think that, like... You can definitely have dreams about just like a random. Well, I, I guess. Well, I think you're right, Charles. Yeah, I, I'm definitely jumping the shark there. I'm, what is it? I'm jumping the gun there. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm jumping to conclusions there. You're done jumping I think, the object that can murder you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I think what what I'm trying to say is, um, yeah, there could be any number of reasons why you would have that dream. It's how you feel when you have that dream, mm. and obviously Maggie has those feelings that she actually does. I believe from watching this episode that she does care about Joel and does not want him to die. Yeah. Well, hey, I just got another moment of uh, okay. just overanalyzing uh, and we're going to connect two plot lines together. Yes. But segue. Uh, in another plot line, Chris is talking about Founders Day of how yes. Sicily was founded by Rosalind and Sicily. Sicily. Right? Yeah. yeah. Two, uh, presumably they're women. And yeah. Are they, they're sort of like, are they frontiers women? They're like trailblazers. What are they? I kind of uh, forgot. They were from, I, I remember uh, Holling saying they came from Billing Society. I don't know if that's like a turn of phrase or if that's an actual place because if I'm Googling it, I don't really get a lot of answers out of that. From Billing Society? Yeah. But I think they're something of that nature, like a frontiers pioneer type of people. Right. And Chris mentions that they kind of had to, from what we can see in context, uh, hide their love. I guess like it just wasn't known to a lot of people. Yeah. Like, so early on in the episode, Chris sort of sets up the idea of the founder's day celebration coming up over the airwaves of K bear. Just a quick note. I think he looks very, we, we mentioned this before about Adam, but I think Chris here looks very David Foster Wallace with the bandana I know. and the glasses. Yeah. Um, founder's day, apparently Sicily, um, was founded in 1932, if I'm not mistaken, but you're right. Later when Chris is practicing his sermon and that's what he calls it, his founder's day sermon. Um, <laughs> he's just sitting in the chapel alone, standing rather, and kind of testing out this speech. And it definitely feels sort of like he's trying to make a case for homosexual love, I guess, because obviously the founders were in love. 
Yeah. And it's love that you have to bury deep within yourself because you just don't want someone or even yourself to acknowledge. Ah. So perhaps that's something to do with Maggie because she's burying it deep within herself like that. Yeah, there's definitely a thematic thematic parallel um, between that. Definitely. Yeah. So uh, I think that this episode, I understand that Maurice is kind of like the more closed-minded character. Mm -hmm. Even then, like for the way they were writing it, to present a closed-minded uh, character, it wasn't that bad for the 1990. Oh, how do you mean? Explain that. Yeah, so I thought he was going to be using much more harsh language or even more oh, terrible gosh. views. Yeah, okay, okay. And okay. even was like it, it's still terrible views, but like not to the level that I thought I was going to get. He to actually in sounds pretty educated too about it because he says it's funny whenever Maurice is disgruntled when he hears this over the airwaves. I believe he's sitting at the brick and he talks about sapphic love. Yeah. Do you know what that's from? Uh, Sappho, the poet, right? The Greek poet? Yeah. The Greek poet Sappho, who was a woman and she was on the island of Lesbos from Greece. Mm-hmm. And she wrote about uh, the young women who were left on the island and her love for girls. So that's where the term uh, lesbians right. had came from. And he references uh, sapphic love, but he also references Hecat and Persephone. And I don't oh, know yeah. why. Hecate? Yeah, is it Hecate or Hecate? I think he it's Hecate. Hecate. He does weird. I don't think that's right. I, don't I think know. You're, you're right. I, maybe. Hopefully I'm right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to edit uh, this out. <laughs> I don't know why he would use them as the uh, poster girls. Who, for, who are, I actually don't know who they are. Who are they? Uh, Persephone was famously with Hades in uh, Greek mythology. Hmm. And I don't. Okay, so I mean, you could be wrong. So he's probably way off here, or maybe maybe we yeah, are. Yeah, or maybe just something like in which I just don't know about it. But even then, like I, I tried googling it, and I knew a little bit about Greek mythology, and uh, neither one of them were hmm. at least those two characters weren't known for being the famously um, lesbian. Yeah, so I, I don't know why I used that. It is kind of funny though the way this scene is shot when Maurice is kind of talking about he's in this disgruntled manner. He just kind of like confides with the person sitting next to him who is an extra. But I like how the camera, it pans over to the extra just for like, Maurice says something. He's like, you know, he's talking about sapphic love. And he says, I've seen, you know, some erotic movies in my time. He says that to the guy sitting next to him. And then it pans back just to Maurice. So just as like quick aside, it's just, it made me laugh for some reason. Do you want to talk about Maurice and his plot line? Let's do it. Yeah, we kind of somehow skirted around it this whole time. But pretty early in the episode, we're introduced to a new character, Ingrid. It's this older lady who enters the brick. I think everyone seems to know her in town. She's sort of seasonal, right? Like she comes into Sicily every once in a while. We learn that her husband is, what is her husband doing? Bird watching or something else? What's going Uh, on there? He's looking at the hares. Oh, like the rabbits. snow hares. Yeah. Yeah. Like counting them or something? Yeah. They have something to do with wildlife agency, I, I would presume, because they're looking at birds and hares, uh, and they trade off on it based on the season. Mm-hmm. So that's why she travels in and out of Sicily, but enough to always come back to it. Yeah. No, yeah. I guess like seasonal, for sure. Migration. And, you know, we get the understanding that she has a lot of affairs. She has a lot of... Would you say well, we don't know if she has a lot uh, of affairs with different men. No, but I we think, know. F- I think we do. Really? Well, I thought um, it was. I, I knew she had a lot yeah. of affairs with Maurice specifically. Yeah, like this is probably a yearly occurrence every spring. Yeah. In fact, it's it's April. I think they mention. So they're like, maybe she's she's here a little early. Yeah, yeah. 
But is it established that she has affairs with other men? Yeah, because whenever Maurice is in bed with her, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, he asks her if he's as funny as another guy. Or, you know, he, he brings up other I, men to her. I thought the man that he was talking about was her own husband. But doesn't he use like two different names? I didn't write this down, but I think he's like referencing different men. Maybe he's referencing Well, the problem husband? is that we don't know the husband's name mm-hmm. and Maurice specifically gives a name. Uh, and I don't know if that's actually the husband's name. Well, here's a, here's my reasoning why I think she might have multiple um, mm-hmm. partners. Uh, Maurice frequently says he wants to defend her honor. Like he doesn't want her to seem, he, he wants to defend her reputation. He doesn't want uh-huh. her to seem like she is sleeping around a lot with different partners. You know, I guess that could still just apply to Maurice. But then also on top of that, we get the sense that Maurice views their relationship, Ingrid and Maurice, as being sort of just like a fling, you know, for lack of a better term, like a hookup. Mm-hmm. That's just the way that Ingrid operates. And Maurice is very much into that uh, sort of agreement. Um, I guess you could be, you could still make the case that that doesn't 100% um, represent Ingrid as having multiple partners. It, I guess you're right. It could still just mean that, mm-hmm. could just, just still be referring to Maurice and her, but... I don't know why I got that sense. That's really uh, funny because I didn't get that sense, but I can see how you got that yeah. sense of how she could have multiple partners. And now I'm, I'm also seeing it from your point of view too. So, you know, <laughs> maybe there is a, it, it's left a little vague for a reason. So it seems like that Maurice is really attached to his past profession of being an astronaut. Uh, yeah. Let's, why do you say that? Uh, apparently that's the thing that really gets him going, I guess. And, uh, just to keep it G rated, I guess that's the <laughs> thing that is, um, uh, that spices things up in the bedroom for him. So <laughs> yeah, he, yeah. he plays a tape of the, of the launch that he was a part of, right? That he was la- when he was launched into space. Yeah. He also gets read as his bedtime story, uh, just the right stuff. The right stuff. Yeah. Which I, I actually didn't realize was a novel. I just thought it was a movie, but you know, a movie based on a novel, I guess. Yeah, maybe based on a novel. Uh, and that's... Uh, the famous astronaut. Yeah, sorry. The famous astronaut. Yeah, the famous astronaut. One where they blast off into space and everything. And he, uh, he uses so many metaphors that are also for space travel or mm-hmm. just um, spaceships in general. It almost seems like he's tied to the profession of identity of who he is. Is tied to his uh, past profession of being an astronaut. Yeah, either that or the writers are, are trying to dig that in as like a character trait is his profession as an astronaut. But like, like I said, it seems to come up a lot, but the specifics of which this is probably the most specific we've gotten with Maurice's adventures as an astronaut. Cause we actually apparently get to see the footage of him blasting off into space. Yeah. But apparently he wasn't the first one to go there. Uh, how do you mean? Uh, in the episode, he says that uh, there was somebody else that got to go oh, before him. Oh, right, right. You know, I never thought to ask this. And I know we're like uh, deep into <laughs> season two, but... Um, it's never too late. What do you think the writers made him an astronaut? Hmm. Honestly, I don't have an educated answer for this. My, my guess, my instinct is just that they thought that was cool. Mm. <laughs> they tried to give him some cool profession that because I feel like that's what that's what Maurice being an astronaut is typically used as just as sort of like a some flair some color to throw on him it's never really super 
important to his day-to-day life, just more than the fact that, oh, it's the old astronaut guy. That's pretty cool, right? Yeah. And I guess he, I guess, I don't know. He talks, he does a lot of astronaut metaphors. I've never met an astronaut, so I don't know. Yeah, that's what I thought was so curious, because they could have made his profession, the most important thing is that he is wealthy. well off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's wealthy. Many professions are wealthy, though, quote unquote. Like he could have been like a, a lawyer or just a successful banker or are investment astronauts person. typically just very wealthy or, or no? Could you be a poor astronaut, like post, you know, a washed up I, astronaut? I don't know. That's the most curious part about it. Because I mean, do astronauts like get paid to go up to space or do they just oh do it God, for science? A, you know, that's really a good question. I wonder if you do get like a stipend when you're up in space in the space stations. Yeah, like, like they just transfer money to your bank account while you're up there. Like is that part of the incentive? It's like you know, this may be very scary, but we're paying you. I guess you know, like the military, but you know, pays yeah, a lot of money. So also, uh, is that not like one of the? This is actually really interesting, but that's probably like. One of the best or wisest financial decisions you can make is that before you get launched into space, presumably you're going to be in space for a, a, at least like a year. Yeah, I'm so assuming. Go buy money. some like bonds or stocks to make yeah. sure they mature. You're not going to be back on Earth. You're not using money when you're up on the space station. You're not going to be taking it out. Just you know. Let's look up. Let's look up astronaut salary. Oh yeah. Starting salaries at just sixty six thousand a year, but then if you're seasoned, you can earn an upward of one hundred and forty four thousand. Okay, that's pretty good, right? Uh, Is that good? Not for the sixty six thousand. <laughs> no, feel, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, don't you have to go through like years of training to become? Wow. One? Yeah. Well, you got to okay. do it for the love of the profession. I'm pretty sure if you're an astronaut, you're pretty excited to be an astronaut, you know? Yeah, it's not, not like you went into it to become A job rich. that everyone gets to do, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Maurice has sleep apnea, right? Or we think... Yeah, we think he has sleep apnea, <laughs> but it turns out that Ginsburg is probably... He was right, because he had mentioned to Joel that that's yeah. a... It, a common misdiagnosis or something? Yeah, a commonly misdiagnosed disease, because uh, it turns out he's actually just allergic to mohair. Yeah, we're, we're jumping ahead. We're, we're just, you know, let's, let's breeze past this. Uh, essentially, Ingrid stays up late one night, and Maurice stops breathing in his sleep. Joel ends up watching Maurice uh, sleep so that he could study this uh, phenomenon or, or this occurrence. Yeah. It turns out he doesn't have sleep apnea. He's allergic um, because in the very next moment, he sees that, what is it? Ingrid had given him a mohair blanket. sweater or blanket or something. And that, that's what, you know, Maurice is sneezing up a storm. Obviously, he's allergic. He has a, mm-hmm. what is it? A, a, a severe allergy. Apparently, he went to a three-day coma when he got a <laughs> mohair sweater from his mother when he was young. Right. Yeah. So then why would he, I guess maybe he didn't know it was mohair when she gave it to him. Yeah. I think it's just not connecting the dots, which Weird. happens from time to time. Well, like an obvious fact presents itself to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I don't understand about this plot line is that Maurice was specifically pushing for a doctor to come to Sicily. Like yeah. he's the one that sought out I was going to bring Joel. the same thing up. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. He, he specifically wants a doctor here. I guess you could argue for cynical reasons of saying like, hey, look, we have a doctor here. Look how fancy we are. Right. But also on the other side, he genuinely believes that like Sicily needs a medical professional here. Mm-hmm. But yet when it comes to his turn, he's like, he's like, no, like I don't want to, he doesn't want to see a doctor. No, I thought that was so strange. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's like the incentive could be purely that Maurice is trying to turn Sicily into the next, the final frontier, you know, the, the next big thing. 
Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I thought the same thing. It, it, isn't it weird that every time Joel has to solve some medical mystery, it's always like the patient refuses to come in to see the doctor. Uh, mm-hmm. So Joel, Joel is always chasing down his patients, it seems. So why would Sicily need a doctor so badly if no one ever goes to see the doctor, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I think that Maurice also has, this is something I noted down. He had talked about the winged chariot. Sooner or later, it sweeps us away. And it's obviously, it's used as an analogy for time. Mm -hmm. But the more I thought about it, there's so many expressions or idioms or turn of phrases about the passage of time. Yeah. I've never heard of this one though, the winged chariot. Winged chariot of time? Yeah. Is that just something that he made up or is that a real one? Uh, It sounds familiar. Oh, it actually is based on something. It's based on a poem from Andrew Marvel uh, called To His Coy Mistress. Okay. Yeah. That's a... To His Coy Mistress. Have I read this poem? Yeah. Time's winged chariot hurrying near and yonder all before us lie deserts of vast eternity. It's uh, just a small oh yeah. This, this is I like this. This is sort of like the seize the day, tempest fugit that that sort of school of of poems. Christopher Marlowe, right? I am Gather so not good at poetry. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, no, I, I totally got that wrong. It was not the poem. First of all, is not called Gather Ye Rosebuds. It's, it's the first line of a poem called "To the Virgins to Make Much of Time," which is actually written by Robert Herrick, not Christopher Marlowe. Oh. I do love the, like, Gather Ye Rosebud stuff. Yeah, that's the you know, same kind of school of poetry. Yeah, I, I get what you're coming from. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know that was from a poem. That Maurice is awfully educated on uh, poetry. Yeah, you know, it's, it's surprising because he seems somewhat bigoted, but I guess because of his money and his wealth, he has experienced the finer things in life. You know, we kind of, we talked about that with his croquet in um, a Kodiak moment. Yeah, you're right. He, you know, he knows fine food. He knows... Art, presumably. Now he knows poetry. Actually, it's interesting. We were talking about the right stuff. The director of this episode, Stephen Robman, is married to Kathy Baker, who is an actress um, who I guess got her debut in, in The Right Stuff, the movie. But it's funny. He married her in 2003. So there's no way he would have... It's just, huh. I guess, a coincidence then. Yeah. I'm drawing too many conclusions. Three three degrees to the right stuff. Right. <laughs> uh, I found out that the state bird of Alaska is the willow ptarmigan. Is that really the state bird? Mm-hmm, still is. And I think it has been since like the 50s or something. Yeah, they mentioned the ptarmigan, which I thank the Lord for subtitles because I had Would no, have no idea, idea how to spell that. Tar- P-T, yeah, t- Willow Ptarmigan. I mean, it's spelled, <laughs> we- it's spelled weird. Yeah, it's such a strange bird uh, name, but yeah, apparently they're indigenous to parts of Europe and Canada and Alaska. So it makes sense that would be the state bird. There you go. Oh, and another little piece of information. At some point, we learned that Ed is programming sort of a film screening for this sort of like film club or film society that he's established in Sicily or that he's a yeah. part of. Uh, the, the film that he's programmed for, for the, for the evening is called pile up on highway 10, which I don't think is an actual film or I couldn't, uh, I couldn't find any information about it online, but regardless, it, it still sort of fits into the theme of uh, disaster, death, you know, a plane crash is yeah. similar maybe to a, a pile up. I think that planes crashing actually do mean something symbolically in dreams. Um, well, actually, since we're talking about it, it's really interesting. Whenever whenever Chris is practicing his sermon, Maggie comes in and she has to ask him about 
you know, he, he seems to be well-versed in dream imagery. And as soon as she mentions the black fedora, I love what he says. It's a dream, a recurring dream. Flashman and I are playing Clue, and he's wearing this black fedora. A black fedora? Uh-huh. Oh, man. I've really gotten to like Joe. What does that mean? Maggie, come on. I mean, your history with men being what it is and a black fedora? How's it happen? The flight from Anchorage to New York. No. The whole plane goes down? Mm. Yeah, he just somehow instantly knows that it's not a good sign. <laughs> I, I agree. Funny. I like that too. It's like, oh no. Uh, airplanes crashing in a dream are usually symbolic of uh, something stopping you from achieving your goals. Oh. Yeah. Oh. So, I, I, so would that pertain to Maggie not achieving her goals or, or Joel not achieving his goals? Joel not achieving his goal because it was Joel's dream that had the plane crash, right? No, it started off as Maggie's dream. Remember? Because... It's her dream that the whole town hears about, you know? Yeah. Yeah, but that's... He ends up having the same dream. But she dreams that he's just going to experience death soon, but not by Right. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I think it's a little bit more toward Joel's side. No, but then she does have a dream with uh, Mr. Streisand, right? Yeah, but they're still just playing uh, He says, don't "Don't tell him about the flight. That's true. So it is in her dream. Yeah, 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 you could make an argument that you're right. It's for anyway. What are we trying to analyze here? What what could that mean uh, for either of them? You know, hmm. not not accomplishing their goals. Well, the very uh, first one I thought of is obviously the impediment of their love for each other. Yeah, I guess that's if we had to write uh, a reason for it, that mu- that could be it. Well, in that scene when Chris is, um, you know, Maggie is seeking his expertise. Mm-hmm. Uh, they ha- they do have a sort of extended conversation about fate and determinism and free will, you know, I guess to get back into the whole existentialism, uh, you know, philosophy debate that's going on. Uh-huh. But it's really interesting, I guess, the conclusion that they come to, or rather that they can't figure out any conclusion. For instance, if Maggie tells Joel that his plane is going to crash, that she had a dream about that, and Joel changes his flight, then if that plane crashes, then it, it will have been as if any choice that they made would have had the same outcome. I mean, I feel like I have to warn him, don't I? Yes, I think so. I mean, if you don't and he goes down in that plane, you got to live with that for the rest of your life. I know. On the other hand, what if you tell him and the plane that he changes to turns out to be the one that crashes? Oh, God, I didn't even think of that. Oh, yeah, this fate thing can be a tricky business. We may have been fated to have this conversation and then decide whatever we decide. So, so you mean whatever my decision is, that's the thing that's going to kill him? It could be. I mean, we're assuming that you have free will, and that's not really that safe an assumption. So I, I should make a decision and then do the opposite thing really fast? Yes, but you were probably fated to do that. Yeah, it's like one of those paradoxes of finding out how you're going to die. Like specifically, you know which day and like how mm-hmm. you're going to die. Like let's say you get hit by a car or something like that. So you you just can't change it. Like you think the actions that you do that aren't going to change it, like I'm just going to stay inside all day, uh-huh. somehow inevitably end up being that's the reason why you got hit by a yeah. car a car came through your door or something like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they're really just stuck in a pickle at that situation. Once they've acknowledged that it's something that they cannot avoid. It's like, oh, you're, you're done. <laughs> right, right. 
Well, I mean, that's, I think we've covered um, the plot lines, right? Let's, let's put this into perspective. So we have Maggie's dream, you know, Joel's plane crashing. It's kind of, it's kind of one plot line. Mm-hmm. Dave Ginsburg, another plot line. And then Ingrid and Maurice kind of packs into, into three plot lines there. I you guess, could argue that Chris is found, founding day is a plot line of sorts. Yeah. It, it fits closely with, uh, with Maggie's dream. For sure. But no, yeah, it's important uh, show Bible information because uh, I think we get a, a bit of a mention maybe uh, of um, Sicily and uh, Rosalind in previous episodes mm-hmm. and cert- they'll certainly come back in future episodes. But um, we get, a, get to know a little bit more about the founders. Yeah. Well, now that we've, you know, properly analyzed this episode, uh, can you still think of any reasons of why it's called What I Did for Love? Um. No, I, I think it's, unfortunately, you know, to, to your dismay, it has nothing to do with the, the musical or maybe the reasoning for the name of the song. It's, it's a song, right? That they're singing in the musical? Yeah, the song uh, is about how, what each performer had to do to get to the tryouts and right. the passion they have for dancing. So, yeah, while unfortunately it doesn't really, for I don't think it really fits with that, but no, I think it's simply a title that rolls off the tongue perhaps and um, you know, perhaps channels in what Maggie does for love, mm. you know, the, okay. you know, having to, you, you know, her choice, I guess, of, of telling Joel, I, mean, I guess that kind of happens you know, midway or maybe earlier in the episode. If you think about it as well uh, with Ingrid, you know, she is concerned for Maurice mm-hmm. and then what's the other plot line? Does it fit in there? No. Uh, Dave Ginsburg. There's no love. For, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> Between Joel and Ginsburg. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's um, season two, episode four. Yeah. So we're going to be introducing this to our friend Taylor. Yeah. Taylor is our guest analyst on the episode. He's never seen this episode or this show before. Well, in truth, he's probably seen brief moments of the show. We used to be roommates, uh, as he'll talk more in depth about. Uh, but I don't think he ever really sat down and watched the show uh, while I was watching. Not for very long, at least. But Taylor brings a unique analysis to this episode because he is a doctor, or, you know, training to be a doctor. Yeah, I think he's in his residency right now, right? Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's a firm assumption. But um, yeah, he seems to have a pretty... Pretty good knowledge of uh, medicine, so hopefully he can incorporate some of that to his analysis. I guess we'll see. See what he has to say. All right, let's roll it. All right, Lee and Charles, what's up, guys? I just want to start off by saying I'm a big fan of the show and uh, honored that you had me on. I guess I wanted to start by explaining my history with uh, Northern Exposure. Uh, Lee and I went to college together, we're roommates, and he and our other roommate Kyle used to watch this on the big projector in our dorm room, and I absolutely hated it. Uh, I thought it was awful, cheesy. I just ended up like leaving the room when they put it on. I have to say, I didn't have high hopes starting this thing, but I may be coming around uh, after this episode. Um, I think the thing that got me in the past was how it, it came off kind of cheesy, but I think I'm starting to appreciate more the kind of heightened nature of the uh, of the dialogue. They kind of heighten it to be funny or to be, you know, poetic, even if it means sacrificing the believability that somebody would actually say something like that. And I think I can appreciate that now. 
Um, just some things that I liked. The strings at the beginning during when they're playing Clue. Uh, I thought that score was really awesome. Reminds me of like old movies, old TV. And then I remember seeing some kind of video that uh, was talking about how the Beatles and uh, George Martin got their uh, string compositions from those old movies and stuff like that, the style. It reminded me of the Beatles, kind of. I thought that was cool. Um, Whenever the guy, Maurice, uh, puts the video of the rocket launch during sex, (laughs) I thought it was really awesome. I'm just putting it together that he's the astronaut, though, so I guess it makes more sense than I thought. It's obviously like uh, kind of a metaphor for <laughs> climax, I guess. I was like, do they just think it's funny like to watch a metaphor instead of like you know, a dirty movie or something? Is this their version of that? I don't know, it just made me laugh. I know the, the Dr. Ginsburg, he seems to be like the maybe anti-hero or, or uh, the antagonist, but I really liked the guy. <laughs> I thought he was awesome. Yeah, seemed like a, a good guy to get to know, have a beer with. I don't know. And then I really liked the line at the end of the movie when uh, Fleischman says, tell me to take that doomed flight and I will. I thought it was like perfectly kind of encapsulated like a feeling that I've had in my own life with this whole like uh, fate versus free will argument. I think everybody has that those thoughts about what's actually going on. But I really like that line because it basically says I don't it doesn't matter which one is correct it's just matters how they feel about each other I just thought that was a really nice line anyways uh, as uh, you guys may know I am a doctor in training resident in internal medicine so I thought I'd comment on the medical aspect of this episode Uh, the sleep apnea yeah so I thought it was kind of funny how, uh, you know, they were, they were so worried that he might just stop breathing in his sleep and die in the middle of the night. Not really a huge concern with sleep apnea, uh, just like suddenly dying. It is important, though, to detect and treat because it can make other things worse, like blood pressure, can give you headaches, make you sleepy throughout the day, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I just thought it was kind of funny that, but, you know, as a doctor, patients will come to you with concerns like that like uh, I'm just afraid I might stop breathing and while I'm sleeping and it's important to address those concerns as well I thought it was funny when uh, he said it was kinky to watch another man sleep <laughs> and then uh, actually uh, so usually these days if you suspect sleep apnea what you would do is as a doctor is order a sleep study where the patient usually comes to the hospital, sleeps in a special bed overnight, hooked up to a bunch of detectors, an oxygen monitor, a bunch of uh, kind of electrodes and stuff that monitor your breathing movements, and they measure the number of times that you stop breathing in a given hour. A certain number equals sleep apnea. Um, but the point being, it's all kind of mechanized and uh, computerized. So. And there's kind of this uh, theme in medicine where everything's becoming more that way, mechanized, computerized, algorithms that you follow to make diagnoses and treatment and things like that. So whenever you can revert back to just pure history and physical, meaning ask the patient what their 
experiencing and do your physical exam, meaning what can you see, hear, feel, observe the patient, the more that you can revert back to that. It just feels really old school and kind of badass. Uh, whenever you get to make a diagnosis that way, it really feels really good because you feel like, all right, man, I'm old school, bad. I'm doing this all just with my own senses. And so for him to uh, essentially stay up all night watching this guy breathe, it didn't work out so well. He didn't because <laughs> the guy didn't have sleep apnea, but it was kind of a bad move when you're stranded in Alaska and you can't just refer them for a sleep study. You gotta, <laughs> you're the doctor, you got to stay up and watch them sleep. So anyways, just as a, as a doctor watching that, I was like, all right, that's pretty cool. Fleischmann's the real deal. Anyways, those are my thoughts. Anyways, thanks for having me on, guys. It was a lot of fun, and gonna have to uh, probably borrow that first season uh, DVD, Lee. Um, hook me up. All right, see y'all later. All right, that was Taylor's commentary right there for season two, episode four. Uh, I really like the stuff that he said about it, particularly about fate and free will. Yeah. And, uh, being uh, being a badass, doing things old school. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was pretty. Um that was pretty cool. Uh, what, what did you like about uh, the fate free will? It's a good theme because Maggie is trying to warn Joel not to get onto the airplane. And previously, Maggie and Chris were talking about how whatever choice that you make, it was going to be a choice ultimately at the end. Right. You can't really differentiate between the two right there. And I don't know if we had talked about it really in depth about that uh, particular theme of fate versus free will, but that's always a really fun one to explore. Yeah, just that uh, frustration that Taylor picked up in Joel's um, request. He says, tell me, you know, if you don't want me to take that flight, just tell me. You know, he, he doesn't, he, he's maybe frustrated and doesn't know what choice to make and is almost giving up. He feels like maybe it's out of his hands, fate, free will, you know? Yeah. And as you said, also, um, the old school detective work of the diagnosis that, for instance, a, a doctor like Joel doesn't have access to these sleep studies. He's got to go to the old methods, which is really cool. I think um, Joel really exemplifies sort of an old school, real deal doctor. And, and maybe that's what he fears uh, Ginsburg might be lacking. There's definitely a lot of um, opposites that are drawn between Joel Fle you know, Fleischman and David Ginsburg. So you think that Ginsburg is lacking bedside manners? Um, no, not necessarily because, uh, as Taylor said, Ginsburg is a lovable guy, a guy you would want to have a beer with. Like, <laughs> Taylor really liked him. <laughs> but I just think maybe, uh, maybe Joel, in his comparison of himself to Ginsburg, fears that maybe Ginsburg isn't the real deal. Because, you know, he doesn't oh, think he's a real deal okay. Jew. And in that same regard, maybe he's um, afraid that Ginsburg is not prepared to to really come out of the city and, and uh, adapt and have to have to use real doctor skills and not rely on sort of the mechanisms and the uh, the digital yeah, yeah arithmetic <laughs> uh, formulas and such though I have to say that like there's probably a sweet spot of where you want to be in terms of old school because if you go a little bit too beyond that right like then civil you're, war times then you're witch then, doctor uncle Anku, <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah or like you're just like oh what's a what should we do it's like I just saw his leg off that will cure the problem it's like, yeah. he has like a broken toe I'm Promise if you you cut the whole thing off, it'll, it'll it fix itself. Yeah. <laughs> well, the toe won't bother him anymore. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I thought that he brought up some really great points on there. I thought that um, 
This is uh, our relationship with Taylor is that we both went to school. Yeah, with, high school uh, with Taylor. Taylor. Yeah, and I remember Taylor being the funniest person uh, yeah. in my class. Yes. Definitely. Great, yeah. So I'm glad he kind of, uh, he, what did he, he had a little, some comments on sort of the heightened nature of uh, the dialogue and the writing. Yeah, I was really glad that he was able to pick up on that. And he was able to find humor in the um, the missile launch, the, the uh, sorry, the rocket, the spaceship mm-hmm. um, launch into space. The, the, uh, how Maurice plays that tape uh, when he's going to bed with Ingrid. But I thought it was funny how <laughs> Taylor maybe had the misconception because uh, he, he didn't, put to, didn't put it all together at that point that Maurice was an astronaut. So he maybe out of context just assumed that's like what <laughs> they do to get their rocks off. <laughs> you know, in his defense, sometimes I forget that Maurice is an astronaut. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I yeah. watched every single episode so far. So yeah. Yeah. Um, those are some really good insights from him. Uh, is there any one that you particularly like from him? Um, I think we touched on the sort of the greatest hits of that um, that little commentary, but uh, a couple notes uh, to take from his commentary and to know about Taylor. Taylor is also a musician, a very gifted musician, and uh, I like how he noticed, uh, it totally went over my head, but the score in the opening and in the dream sequences with, uh, what is it, um, Mr. Streisand, like Mr. Death, essentially. Um, it's very old fashioned strings and things like that. It kind of re- to Taylor it reminded him of old movies and maybe the Beatles, um, the string arrangements with the Beatles. Apart from that, uh, I don't know if you could hear, but it kind of sounded like, <laughs> Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I just cut you off exactly what you're going to say, but, uh, <laughs> it sounds like there's some water in the background. Yeah. It sounds like not only running water, but maybe some crickets. I can only imagine, um, so running water, I thought maybe like a bathtub, but then crickets are going on. So I just imagine Taylor is sort of like being the best doctor that he is sitting in like his hot tub outside at night, just like recording a <laughs> commentary into his iPhone. Let me propose the other opposite spectrum of this. Uh, I, I like, it sounds like it's like a cavern of some kind. <laughs> it's and like Taylor, a trippy you, cavern. Yeah. Taylor, are you being held hostage by like Al Qaeda <laughs> in like a small cavern? Just right into the podcast, Northern Overexposure yeah. podcast at, at gmail.com. We'll send help. help. We'll, we'll try to get as much help as we can uh, with our limited power. Yeah. Well, thanks Taylor for, for doing this commentary. Um, yeah. This is kind of our first time that we've really had a, a sort of a doctoral, a doctoral, what's the word? The, res- the perspective um, from a person of medicine. <laughs> yeah. Guess. Someone with uh, authority who can speak on the subject. A bit of a background. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that went great. Uh, we have the next episode, season two, episode five, Spring Break, one of my favorite episodes. We've got a very special guest next episode. I guess uh, we, we won't spoil the surprise, but it's going to be good. <laughs> yeah. All right, Charles. I'll see you then. All right. See you then, man. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme song was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork, and thanks to Taylor for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write into the podcast, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. And of course, thank you for listening.